Man, Jay, I am gonna miss Moira McTaggart when we get to the part where she dies of the legacy virus. Oh boy, do I have some news for you, Miles. Oh, they brought her back? Well, retconned her back more. So the whole thing about her being the first human to die of the legacy virus... False on multiple fronts. First of all, she didn't die. I'm pretty sure she died. Miles, consider whom she hangs out with. Wait, she pulled an Xavier? She pulled an Xavier. But also, she can't have been the first human to die of the legacy virus, because she's not human. She's a mutant. Twists within twists. Okay, what's her mutant power? Oh, I'm not quite sure what to call it. Maybe, like, looping immortality? Huh. How's that work? Well, every time Mora dies, she goes back to the beginning of her life, but with the accumulated knowledge of every previous lifespan she's lived. That's gotta make for some pretty weird childhoods. And then some. But it's also let her work pretty consistently towards her goals, you know, testing out different potential paths. So, what are some of the highlights? Uh, let's see. Working exclusively with Xavier. Makes sense. Working exclusively with Magneto. Makes slightly less sense. Working exclusively with Apocalypse. I am not even gonna ask. Discovering a cure for mutants, wiping out every generation of the Trask bloodline. So, some conflicting goals. Surviving to see a future where sentient AI had won a millennium-long death struggle with mutants before merging with humanity as part of the latter's desperate bid to get consumed by the phalanx. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 358, that's the 2021 Winter Special, of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. That's right, it's the most wonderful time of the year, the time when you get to hear us talk, like, too much about comics and comic-adjacent things and whatever the hell's on our mind. But not just us, since we'll, we'll be hearing from at least three guests over the course of this particular Winter Special. Yes, we are very excited. And Jay, I'm always excited about these. Like, for me, doing a winter special, that is a sign of another year survived. And after this year, I feel like that means a lot. I've got to admit, more than anything else this year, I'm tired. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this has been a, a year of, of much exhaustion, among other things. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the show. I'm happy to be doing this. But this week, um, two days ago, I finished the last of my semester projects for my first semester of grad school, and I'm still kind of reeling. Yeah, I believe it. It still blows me away that you're doing, like, all the things you're doing, including this show, which I still love doing with you, so yay for that. Right on. So, yeah, here we are at the end of 2021, at the end of Onslaught. We have 100% completed Onslaught for real this time. And as we always do, we were thinking, okay, well, we want to do something that's really special to us, or really interesting, or really something for the Winter Special. We've done the first issue of Generation X, uh, the first trade paperback of Excalibur, we covered God Loves Man Kills, as I recall. This year we were really, really struggling with what to do, but Miles unearthed this, this obscure little miniseries called Daydreamers. 
Yes, indeed. It's technically kind of sort of a Generation X spinoff in that it's set up in some Generation X issues that we haven't yet covered but soon will. But it stands alone pretty well, and it's weirdly kind of an appropriate epilogue epilogue to Onslaught. Oh, crap. So I guess that means I guess that means we're not entirely done with Onslaught. Maybe it's less an epilogue epilogue to Onslaught than, than a, a fresh glimpse into what the future will bring. Okay, yes, yes, let us look boldly forward into both 2022 and the post-Onslaught reality of this podcast, even if Onslaught ended up being a lot better than we expected in at least some ways. So, before we talk about Daydreamers, we did mention we don't need to cover too much of what led into it in Generation X, but we should cover what happened previously on Adorable Moppets. Introduced in X-Factor, Artie Maddox is a pink kid whose early life was pretty rough due to his messed up scientist dad, but he's doing much better now. Artie doesn't speak, but he can project his thoughts as visual images, which looks generally pretty cool. Leech is a green kid whose early life was pretty rough due to his sewer-dwelling mutant family being mostly murdered by the Marauders, but he's doing much better now, too. Leech can negate the superpowers of those around him, and he's much better at controlling that these days. Franklin Richards is a vaguely beige kid whose early life was pretty bonkers due to his being the son of two members of the Fantastic Four. He's having a rough time. His parents, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, just sacrificed their lives alongside a bunch of other heroes to defeat the villainous Onslaught. These days, all three Moppets are living in a treehouse in the Danger Grotto at the new Xavier School alongside Generation X. Hey, wait a minute. Is, is anyone even trying to teach those kids? Are they just feral moppets? They are feral moppets. Also, and we haven't gotten to this part in the show yet either, uh, Howard the Duck is is there. Do we do we know anyone who knows what Howard's deal is? As a matter of fact, we do. Before we dive into Daydreamers proper, it's worth noting that this series features two characters who we don't generally cover on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, those being Man-Thing and Howard the Duck. And as it turns out, we have a couple of folks very familiar with Howard the Duck. So after a years-long absence, welcome back to the show, Hub and Lisa. Hey! Hi, Hi guys. How's it going? (laughs) Nice to see you again. Ah, oh, you as well. Likewise. Uh, it is it is going pretty well. We're excited about this gigantic winter special. We are just barely starting as of right now. Oh. Hi, Finley. And yes, our, our third our third guest, um, Hub and Lisa's dog, Finley, who may be making occasional appearances. Mm-hmm. And would like to be let out of the room. Also fair. He'll need to be let back in in a second. <laughs> <laughs> as is his prerogative. So for listeners who don't have years old episodes fresh in their minds... But they should. Uh, Hub and Lisa, tell us about your relationship with Howard the Duck. Who are you? What do you want from us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, I host a show called Tighten Up the Defense, in which we cover New Teen Titans and Defenders comic books. And Lisa was good enough to fill in on a couple of issues as my co-host. And the issues that we covered kind of were bummers and so we decided we were going to do a romp issue so we did howard the ducks treasury size comic book and then we liked it so we started a patreon only show called what the duck a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show yeah you know 
something catchy. Uh, and so far we have covered, I think, all of the Steve Gerber issues of Howard the Duck and all of his appearances in Man-Thing. Wow. Uh, so you are well qualified to to tell us all about this character that I think our show has maybe mentioned a couple of times briefly, but that's about it. I hope so. I'll do, we'll, we'll do our best. Yes. So what what is Howard the Duck's deal? Well... Before we get to Howard, we should actually probably talk about Man-Thing because they're kind of linked. Okay. So Man-Thing is a scientist who was bit by a radioactive dick joke (laughs) um, and has the proportional strength and powers of a dick joke. We also should talk about the Heap and Swamp Thing, too. Because to understand Man-Thing... You have to understand those guys as well. Kinda. See, Man-Thing's first appearance was in May of 1971. And his better-known DC counterpart, Swamp Thing, he first appeared in July of 1971. And the similarities go a little bit deeper than that. They have almost identical origins and appearances, with the exception of Man-Thing having a dick that looks like... Well, we don't know what that looks like, uh, <laughs> with the exception with the exception of Man Thing having a nose that looks like a dick. It really does. He looks kind of like he was a Frosty the Snowman who was built out of like raw sewage and sex toys. Um, I don't even want to know what was in the that old hat that they found that they put on his head. How is this character not Marvel's headliner? Like, okay, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Iron Man, whatever. Man-Thing needs to lead the next phase of the MCU. Well, we know that he got his own giant size special because we had a trivia team named after it for years. You know, giant size Man-Thing. That's true. Oh, man. You see, the, the dick jokes with Man-Thing are just so on the nose. And that's <laughs> what his nose looks like. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. wrong. <laughs> um... But the other thing that differentiates him from Swamp Thing is something that I think Marvel needed to do because they were so similar. That is his personality, or rather lack thereof. So as I said, Swamp Thing and Man-Thing both appeared pretty near the same time. Swamp Thing was a little bit later, but he got his own title first, and so he got his character developed more and more quickly. Uh, I think normally Marvel probably would have sued, but it turned out they were both kind of ripping off a third and fourth swamp creature who were pretty similar. There was one called The Heap that Roy Thomas, who was one of the co-creators of Man-Thing, had been a big fan of, who was a Golden Age hero, who, maybe not coincidentally, was revived in March of 1971. And The Heap was actually a kind of ripoff of a Theodore Sturgeon short story called It which came out in 1940, and, again, probably not coincidentally, Marvel published a comic book version of in 1972. So the early 70s, they were really fertile ground for these plant-themed characters. Oh. Mm -hmm. Well done. (laughs) I, I saw what you did. Yes! So you mentioned that these characters had very similar origins and powers. For folks unfamiliar with with any of that bunch, what were those? They were kind of were swamps, <laughs> like half swamp, half man. So uh, it's odd that none of them had the name Swamp Man. They went with Thing instead for whatever reason. But uh, 
Yeah. Swamp Thing and Man Thing were both scientists who were working on things in the swamps. Their assistants sabotaged those experiments, and then they went out into the swamp and presumably died, and then were resurrected as a humanoid being made out of swamp. As one does. In Man-Thing's case, that uh, that scientist was named Ted Salas, and like every other scientist in the Marvel Universe, he was working on the Super Soldier Serum. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of the, the uh, almost high school graduation exam in science school in the Marvel Universe. Like, you gotta see what you could do with the Super Soldier Serum, otherwise no diploma. I don't know, early 70s, it could also have been radiation. Or a circus. Radioactive super circus. Oh, now that's the comic I want to read. But the comic we're reading, alas, is not that, although now I wish we'd chosen a radioactive super circus. So we have Man-Thing. We have uh, Man-Thing as this one of the many swamp characters. And we also have Howard related to Man-Thing. Yeah, what, what is their relationship? Well, Man-Thing is a character that really just survives on emotion. He doesn't have any cognitive or personality. Yeah, he's kind of a emotional jellyfish. He just kind of drifts around and reacts to whatever emotions are around him. And when you have a character like that, it's really difficult to structure a comic book around him because he's more of a plot device than he is a character. So... The writer, in this case Steve Gerber, who took over Man-Thing after his, like, I think the fifth appearance of Man-Thing, uh, Steve Gerber took over as the writer, he had to surround him with a cast of interesting characters. So you got a barbarian who lived in a peanut butter jar named Korek, you got a teenage sorceress named Jennifer, you got an Atlantean sorcerer named Dakim, and eventually... You got a talking duck named Howard. Who kind of just dropped out of, the, out of the sky. Yeah, he just kind of showed up one day. Uh, he, he popped up from behind a tree and the creation of the character, I guess, apparently worked the same way. Uh, Gerber always said that Howard just showed up in his head one day and just kind of appeared fully formed like Athena springing from Zeus's head. And in terms of pers- personality... Howard is actually kind of like the original Gen Xer. Yeah, that's that's how I've ended up kind of viewing the character. It's weird because, as I said, Gerber had a huge influence on Man-Thing. And so Man-Thing is a character that has Gerber's metaphoric fingerprints all over him. Whereas Howard the Duck is a character who has Steve Gerber's metaphoric fingerprints. Because he is Steve Gerber. But as an anthropomorphic duck. Yeah. When Howard's done well, I feel like he is kind of a... The only pragmatic character in the Marvel Universe. Kind of an everyman philosopher who accepts his lot in life is going to be weird, but isn't doing anything... but, But reacts to situations the way that a person would react to them. When he's done poorly, or when he's done in a way that I think neither one of us react too favorably to, he ends up acting kind of like if 
Dave Eggers was Bill Maher and also a duck. Ooh, that is a vivid combination. Yeah. So is Howard a fourth wall breaker? Because he sounds like he should be. He's not really. Uh, He's a fourth wall ignorer, kind of. Um, (laughs) Or a a pushbacker against. But he doesn't ever actually, like, directly address camera. He's not like a Deadpool or an ambush bug. Lisa said earlier he's kind of like the ultimate Gen X character. And he, he kind of is. He's like very much ahead of his time in a lot of ways, but still very much behind our times. Uh, in, in terms of his general attitude is just one of... I don't like that. Yeah, omni-cynicism. Anything. <laughs> I don't like anything. And that definitely fits with the Howard that we will have seen once we get to the Gen X comics that lead up to this miniseries. Like, Howard is really good at complaining, and yeah, it feels like when he's written well... That's fun. When it's written poorly, you're like, man, that duck's a dick. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Howard has really not aged particularly well. Uh, But whatever else it is, it's almost always interesting. So as far as, like, the Howard the Duck series itself, because I know it became a series, from what I understand, that was as much, like, uh, a satire as as it was an actual story, right? Sometimes. Uh, yeah, sometimes. I When it starts off, I think Howard the Duck is actually really innovative and fun and really gripped me. Uh, Howard begins by kind of lampooning superhero comics in general. Yeah, and I think that's a situation in which Howard functions really well. Uh, I would hesitate to call a lot of what he does satire because it doesn't have a specific point of view that it's trying to get across. It's more lampooning than it is satire. Um, When it was in the early comics, I think it would be more satire of, like, the structures that he was forced to exist within. Uh, When he was appearing in Man-Thing, he would often be taking part in a satire of horror comics and pushing against the boundaries of those. Uh, Then at times he was pushing against the boundaries of superhero comics. And then once he got his own series, he got popular enough that Steve Gerber became his own editor and could do whatever he want with it, whatever he wanted with it. And at that point it kind of floundered a little bit because there wasn't really anything to push back against except for the kind of general concept of society itself. But when you're not taking sides and you're just taking kind of pot shots at whatever pops up, it's hard to really even classify that as satire, I think. So by the time we hit Daydreamers, Howard the Duck clearly has his own narrative and his own story and his own life. Can you give us a little bit background, a little bit of background on that? You know, who who the Bev he keeps referring to is, what he's up to when he's not jaunting around the multiverse with Franklin Richards? Bev doesn't really matter. (laughs) She's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Not, you know, not in reality, but that's kind of how the Howard the Duck is written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the comic books, she is a character who very aggressively is denied and seemingly has no interest in agency. She is Howard's counterpart in the book, to an extent. Um, she seems like a nice lady. Sure. 
but she kind of just drifts in and out of the picture and is someone for Howard to alternately love love and resent. Yeah, that's mostly the feelings about women. <laughs> this whole thing with Howard being Steve Gerber, so we're really learning quite a bit about Steve Gerber's attitude toward women here. Yes, and Beverly was in fact based explicitly on his uh, writing partner and I believe occasional romantic partner, Mary Screenies. So there's that too. Gotcha. So Howard has met Bev, who's very much a human. So Howard is actually in like Earth 616 in the main Marvel universe at this point. Yeah. See, Man-Thing was uh, the guardian of the nexus of reality, which is just basically the point which happens to be in a swamp in Florida. Wasn't that Havoc for a while? Who was the Nexus, not who was the Guardian of the Nexus? I think that was a different Nexus. I think that phrase has been used multiple unrelated times in the Marvel Universe. I think. It's a good word. You, you best protect your Nexus. <laughs> but specifically Nexus of all realities. It, it could be. I'm actually not that familiar with the, the Havoc backstory. Um, as it was used in the Man-Thing comics, the Nexus of all reality was just kind of a conjunction of all genres that just kind of converge in one point, which happened to be in a swamp in Citrusville, Florida, which was uh, be a town which was being run by the very subtly named F.A. Schist. <laughs> I mean, as somebody who uh, grew up in Florida, I can confirm that, that all of this is accurate. All of this is 100% true. Yes, genres do in fact all connect specifically in a swamp. I had often wondered. So Howard then was from a different world. Yeah, he was from a world that differs from ours in narratively convenient ways, but mostly is exactly like our world, but populated by ducks. Um, it seems like he should be a fish or perhaps duck out of water, but he never really seems to be one. Are the ducks aware that they're ducks, or is it like ducktails where the ducks are actually human? Ducks are human. Yeah. Which, and actually very much like ducktails, in that Howard and at least in his early appearances, looked a not legally dissimilar enough amount like Donald Duck that uh, they got into some legal trouble with Disney. So, in addition to headlining comics, Howard the Duck was also the, the eponymous star of a feature film. Mm -hmm. That's a kind word for it. <laughs> for it. Is apparently George Lucas was a big fan of Howard the Duck, and uh, yeah, I think would Howard the Duck have been his first big flop? I I think so. I mean, it was an impressively big flop. I know you talk about it on your show. We we can't really fully avoid duck sex, can we? No, not in... I mean, we can if we're lucky. <laughs> I, I feel like every, everyone, including ducks, should want to avoid duck sex. It's maybe the worst sex in the animal kingdom. Such just a fundamental design flaw. It's it's like if, if Rube Goldberg really disliked consent and also designed sexual reproduction. Yeah, so we have a segment on our program where the our least favorite part of every comic book we call the corkscrew penis because that is the most disturbing part of a duck 
and so we want to know what the most disturbing part of every comic book is, and damn it, ducks, damn it, duck penises, do better. Why you gotta be like that? Here are words I've seen in scientific articles used to describe aspects of duck sex. Explosive. Violent. Labyrinthine. Decoys. Oh, Lovecraftian? Does that ever pop up in there? Cyclopean? <laughs> Boo? Does that word pop up in there? <laughs> Do they ever just actively boo as scientists the concept of duck sex? And if not, can they even call themselves scientists? I feel like that's also part of the qualifications, you know? <laughs> so I feel like we've covered the important stuff here. Man-Thing, Howard the Duck, horrifying corkscrew penises. If people would like to learn more about these things, how would they go about listening to the two of you, Hub and Lisa, describe them in greater detail? Well, as Lisa mentioned earlier, we co-host a show called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Um, I believe it is the only show called that. Um, it is available through the Patreon to tighten up the defense. There is, I think the first episode of it is up on tighten up the defense's regular feed. So if you want to check that out and see if it is worth, uh, making a Patreon donation and checking out the show, you can do that. Um, and other than that, just, you know, visit your local library and... Look in the duck sex section, and you'll find either me or Lisa just standing there booing. <laughs> and listeners, we recommend it because these are delightful people. I mean, I think delightful enough to justify seeking out duck sex information. Oh, wow. Oh, shucks. But never, ever delightful enough to justify seeking out duck sex. No. Nothing Even is. if you're a duck. Not even once. Thank you both uh, so much for coming on. We are going to talk about uh, Daydreamers, but this has been lovely, and our listeners are now much better prepared. Thank you. Oh, thank you so Thanks, much. guys. And with that, let's jump into Daydreamers number one, Once Upon a Time. Plot by J.M. DeMattis, script by Todd DeZago, pencils by Martin Egeland, inks by Howard M. Shum, colors by Kevin Somers, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And so here we are at the start of this magical and very strange, as it turns out, journey. Where do we dive into this, Jay? Well, we open with Howard the Duck about to be decapitated by a court that's somewhere between A Thousand and One Nights, The Wizard of Oz, and Alice in Wonderland. As Artie Leach, Franklin Richards, Man-Thing, and Tana Nile, whom we'll get to shortly, um, hover stuck in a bubble overhead. So who is who is Tana really quickly? I just realized that we we didn't mention her in any of our intros. Okay, so we'll get more on Tana's deal and why she ended up at the treehouse later in this episode. But what we do know is that she is a Rigelian conqueror, and she was actually a Thor villain, like way, 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 way back in the day. Now, it may occur to you to ask how we reached such a point of peril as I just described. Well, there are a couple steps to that. First of all, Tom Cassidy, that's Black Tom Cassidy, was attacking the school while Howard, Bev, that's Howard's girlfriend, Franklin, and Tana were hanging out in Ardian Leech's treehouse. Howard summoned Man-Thing for help, and Man-Thing slurped them all into another universe, or apparently the nexus of all realities. That stuff's all in Generation X number 25, which, again, we'll get to later. For right now, we don't really need to worry about it. The only important part is that this bizarre collection of characters is flying through, you know, this place. Also, Franklin refers to Man-Thing as Mr. Salad. 
You should know that. It's pretty adorable. I really think they should have retitled Man-Thing's comic Mr. Salad after that, but really giant size Mr. Salad is entertaining, but not as entertaining as giant size Man-Thing. Within the nexus of all realities, Howard was doing his usual thing and yammering about how much he hates everyone and everything when a frustrated Tana chucked him through the nearest multiversal doorway. Okay, like, I know Tana Nile was a villain when she started, but she hasn't been very villainous yet. Did, did this seem excessive to you, or was Howard being that terrible? Well, it looks like she just intended to push him down, and he skipped off the edge of the, the block of sod they were on and, and ended up flying through a door. Oh, yeah, okay. Not great, but, you know. So, Howard found himself in a reality that comes off as an off-brand blend of Alice in Wonderland and Oz. That is Never Never Narnosbia, which makes it sound like Narnia was supposed to be a part of this as well, but I don't see any Christian allegories, do you? I don't. Um, we do, or even giant lions hanging out on their own. Yeah, like, like I thought it was when I was a kid. I was so naive. I didn't realize that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was a whole big Jesus thing. I had no clue. I was raised Jewish, mostly. Aw, oh, buddy. So after fleeing a Hulk-like Tweedledum Tweedledee analog, Howard found himself in possession of a genie lamp, um, and a genie who looked suspiciously like a scrawl, and then was promptly captured for stealing the lamp, which takes us back to where we started. Right. Although, I think that's supposed to be Green Goblin, but that just makes me realize how similar Green Goblin and most Skrulls look. Oh, see, I assumed a Skrull because I was looking specifically for Fantastic Four analogs. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, the point is, it's a green person with pointy ears who wears purple. This part's interesting, though, because as the Tweedledee-Tweedledum Hulk walks off, this Arabian Night-style lamp just falls out of the Hulk character's pocket onto the ground, and then Howard picks it up and the genie comes out. And that's kind of how this miniseries works. Like, one set of references just leads into the next scene, the next pop culture slash fairy tale reference, with only the barest bit of logic. But, you know, I I'm okay with this. I mean, this takes place in the nexus of all realities, the domain that Man-Thing is connected to and, and Howard is familiar with. So, you know, that that seems fine. Meanwhile, Artie has been able to use his powers to track Howard down, but before settling on the duck, he projected a big, scary shadow that none of them recognized. Turns out this is actually a real dude who is captaining, quote, a ship of empty souls through the Nexus in search of someone. So it only kind of looks like it. Mostly it just looks like a Viking longship kind of deal and mentions souls, but this does remind me of the Nagelfar from Norse mythology, which is a ship made of the untrimmed finger and toenails of the dead, and when it gets big enough, it will set sail, carrying an army of the dead to go do terrible things during Ragnarok, because only Norse mythology would try to convince little kids to take better care of their fingernails and toenails by telling them that if they didn't, there would be a skeleton apocalypse because of it. Once our party has reached the world in question, the bit of sod they've been traveling on promptly crushes what appears to be the Scarlet Witch, here the Red Witch of the Southeast. And they're praised by a bunch of very happy, tiny uh, Ben's Grimm, as I noticed you put it in our notes. Uh, it's kind of adorable. They're, they're munchkins, except they're the thing. And they are then greeted by Doctor Strange dressed as Galinda the Good Witch, which would be cuter if he weren't then played as a super stereotypical drag queen. You know, we're covering comics from the 90s, and sometimes this sort of thing happens. I'd like to think it wouldn't now, but... Well, anyway. 
Strange cannot take the group onto another realm, but he can take them to the king, who may be able to. Alas, before they can get there, they are attacked by the Red Witch of the Southwest, once again, a Scarlet Witch. One of the characters mentions that she looks like she's got a real bustle in her hedgerow. You know, random Led Zeppelin references, which are fantastical and a little incoherent, are actually quite appropriate and appreciated here. Oh, is that what that is? I was wondering. Oh, yes, from Stairway to Heaven, which is a great song, but also only kind of makes sense. So, the Red Witch of the Southwest takes them to the king. This turns out to be basically Dr. Doom and his wife, Emma Frost, which again takes us back to where we started with Howard's head on the chopping block. The kids do manage to get everybody free from the Red Witch's bubble, thanks to Leech's newfound control of his powers— and they fight off all the attacking soldiers, and I love Artie's comedic thought bubbles during this scene and, like, most of the other scenes in this comic. In this case, it's just him looking freaked out with a little thought bubble of all of our heroes as angels with their hands together sailing upward like dead cartoon characters. Like, Artie thinks in cartoon logic, and he's a kid of the age that that actually is perfect? I just love Artie. I love Artie and Leech. I love those pink and green moppets. They're very good kids. Unfortunately, the angels are unable to fight off the big scary shadow guy who appears and says, Franklin Richards, I have come for you. And that brings us to Daydreamers number two across the universe. Plotted by J.M. DeMattis, scripted by George Broderick Jr., penciled by Martin Egeland, inked by Howard M. Schum, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. The cover tells us that this is where the weird things are, but unfortunately we don't get any Marie Sendak references. Those would have been really fun. We do, in fact, pick up right where we left off. And we pick up with something that hasn't happened before in this comic and has almost never, if ever, happened before, period, and that is Man-Thing speaking. Oh man, we're in for it now! For some reason, the phrasing of Man-Thing across this entire series just makes me think of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, and I don't know why, but it makes me so happy. I guess more him voiced by Casey Kasem and less by Matthew Lillard, but Matthew Lillard does a good job too. Now, the Dark Hunter is only there for Franklin, and to get the rest of them out of the way, he traps them in their deepest anxieties. Yeah, so we have Man-Thing overwhelmed by emotion, because that's sort of his deal, and if anybody's scared around him, he sets them on fire, which has always confused me. We should have asked Hub and Lisa more about that. But uh, anyway, Tana Nile fixates on trying to convince the other Rigelians that she's not a traitor, that she was just trying to, like, save their civilization by making them better. And Howard the Duck freaks out about being out of Pop-Tarts, because Howard remains selfish, petty, terrible, and very entertaining. Thankfully, Strange saves them, and again remains kind of a stereotype. Enough, tall, dark, and, well, tall and dark. Wearing black before 5pm is so gauche. Your presence is an insult to my aesthetic sensibilities. So I know this is terrible and kind of offensive, but I also think drag queenie Doctor Strange is awesome? I don't know how to feel about this. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence there as well. Well, despite being surprisingly awesome, he can't send our heroes home, it's just on to the next world. And once again, this is just the way this series works. There's just a progression of things the characters are experiencing. It reminds me a little bit of the Nightcrawler miniseries in that regard. It very much does, yeah. And the thing is, that's not a bad thing. It does mean that it's not necessarily a logical story, but it's a story 
called Daydreamers. It features Howard the Duck, of all characters. And so I, I feel fine about that. I think that sometimes just having, like, a wacky romp that may or may not have things to say about society and might just be for fun is totally fine. And if we get to see Artie and Leech being the Moppets that are romping through said romp, then all the better. So, again, Strange can't send our heroes home, just on to the next world. The nature of which is immediately evident by both art and narration. With a wave of that wand, our heroes were moving. Their spirits were high. Their moods were improving. But they dumped with a thump, though they knew not quite how. Then Howard chimed up. Where the f*** are we now? The narration is like this for the rest of this world, and there is a not inconsiderable amount of narration. I really appreciate this, because nine times out of ten, when you get a comic in verse, it does not scan, and this, for the most part, actually does. And it's fun between that and, as I mentioned, the art, where it's very clearly modeled after Dr. Seuss's style— it's just delightful. It's like you're reading kind of a lost Dr. Seuss book, which is perhaps not quite as good, but does have the advantage of starring Artie Leach, Howard the Duck, Tana Nile, and Man-Thing. Like, it's not just an annoying reference, it's actually an homage that just uh, adds, I hesitate to say, perhaps adds a little bit to Dr. Seuss's already impressive oeuvre. Um... That, 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 that's a point on which we somewhat differ, but I do agree that it's a fun homage and, and definitely worthwhile and executed fairly well. Yeah, Egelin clearly had a blast drawing all of this. Uh, Howard describes the city that they had to, this Seussian city, as having been built by Rube Goldberg on acid. Much like his own reproductive system. Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, but, Doc Cox aside, uh, yeah, Dr. Seuss's gadgetry and architecture and stuff... Being designed by Rube Goldberg on acid is actually the most concise, accurate way of describing that I've ever heard. Okay. So our characters, especially the kids, are starving. To the point where an objecting Howard the Duck, who just wants to get the hell out of here, is almost crushed by Artie's giant thought bubble full of junk food. That's another fun thing about a comic with this style, is you can get a little less literal about such things and add in that almost Looney Tunes logic to it. They do head to a restaurant populated by Seussian types, you know, those sort of quasi-human, quasi-bird, quasi-furry something or others, and start to order, and Howard freaks the server out by ordering normally. Thankfully, Franklin gets it. No, Mr. Duck, like this. The, uh, lady wants a salad, the duck wants souffle... The big guy wants swamp monk that was fresh ground today. And we'll three have burgers and potatoes french fried and, um, throw in some strawberry shakes on the side. Yeah, I, it's stuff like this that makes me love this series. It commits. Artie is still suspicious. Uh, he's thought bubbling the dark hunter they saw before while scowling at Franklin, which is interesting and new, but they have no time to fight or argue or discuss because they're arrested by police cats. We're the Cadence Police. Don't move and don't blink. And if you can manage it, try not to think. You've broken rule one, gone beyond its parameter. With your willful misuse of iambic pentameter. So, 
These aren't, I, they're, they're not using IMs though. None of them were. They're all dactyls. Oh, I feel so betrayed. This section of this series has been so lovingly detailed, and they mixed up one form of verse for another? Alas, yes. Well, every rose has its thorn, I suppose. Every dactyl has its being mistaken for an iamb. And our heroes decide that it might make the most sense to let themselves be arrested, because being in jail will at least give them a degree of protection from the big shadow guy. And as they do, they pass by a bunch of onlookers who are all spouting various famous Dr. Seuss character lines, and, like, the prison wagon is being pulled by Horton the Elephant. There are just so many little references crammed in. And, like, the series does that in general. I mean, we saw certainly a number of Oz analogs in the earlier Oz section. But, I don't know, for my money, this Dr. Seuss section, that's where a lot of the real love, a lot where a lot of the details and references really, really went. Like, I found myself... As much as part of the charm of this series is the characters going from one world to another to another, I find myself wishing they would just stay in this one for longer because I was enjoying it so much. Absolutely agreed. In the Who's Gow, like, you know, the Who's that, that Horton heard, uh, well, well, anyway, in jail, uh, Howard asks Tana Nile why she was hanging out with the kids. How did she meet up with Generation X? I mean, he just showed up there after giving Chamber and Skin a ride. Who are you to question a Rigelian, waterfowl? My race was old before your ridiculous feathered species was born. I'm sorry, Howard. Old programming. But she explains. She eventually realized that her conquering species was in the wrong, and she tried to convince them, including trying to convince her fiancé, the Grand Commissioner. But she was branded a traitor by all of them and fled to Earth. On Earth, she was hoping to talk to one of the big super teams to get help. I mean, she'd certainly encountered some of Earth's heroes before, but she showed up right after Onslaught, and all the heroes were gone, so she just ended up at Generation X's school and met up with Artie and Leech and hung out in a treehouse. How very ignominious. Aw, it's a nice treehouse. They're nice Moppets. But they're not getting her any closer to mending fences with her species or preventing them from taking things over again. I suppose not. Tana Nile is actually envious of Howard. I mean, he's in exile too, but he learns to adapt, and she still feels entirely alone, entirely alien on Earth. And Howard, for his part, realizes maybe being a constant jerk to everyone around you is not the best plan, and they hug, and it's actually very sweet. Don't worry, Howard will forget that lesson almost immediately. So... At the same time, the Dark Hunter, that big shadowy figure on his not-fingernail-toenail longship, attacks the kids and Man-Thing in the other cell, and is immediately smashed into goo by Tana Nile, who busts them all out and rips the door off its hinges with her super strength. She has powers where she can control mass and density and strength and stuff. It's a Rigelian thing, I assume. I think they just all do that on Rigel, just ripping jail doors off their frames constantly. The jail door manufacturing industry uh, is just making bank all the time. Anyway, our heroes do what one does under the circumstances and steal a cop car, but they're not quite fast enough and the Dark Hunter manages to grab Artie. After this, Leech is very suspicious. I mean, Artie's his best friend for starts, but he realizes, wait a minute, that only happened. The Dark Hunter only was specifically interested in Artie. 
when Artie got mad and was suspicious of Franklin. Who now insists that they can't go after the Dark Hunter. But the others convince Man-Thing to try real, real hard and talk more like Shaggy, and Man-Thing teleports the rest of them across realities to try to follow the Dark Hunter and get Artie back. Which lands them in Howard's world, or at least what appears to be Howard's world. Yeah, they're, they're in Duck World, complete with a sexy lady duck on a billboard advertising pond water, which just brings me right back to the duck nipples we were talking about with Hub and Lisa. That scene, I still remember being a child and watching the Howard the Duck movie, and I remember two things about that movie. Thing one, there's like this robot scorpion monster thing at the end that terrified me and gave me nightmares. Thing two, fucking duck nipples. Like, six-year-old me really did not know what to make of nipples in general, let alone duck nipples. And there they were. Just dozens of them everywhere. Labyrinthine. But this is a little different from what Howard remembers of his world. Here, now, Howard is a celebrity. There's a giant gold statue of him. As Hub and Lisa might say, what the duck? Which brings us to Daydreamers number three, Dark Eyes. Plotted by J.M. DeMattis, scripted by Todd DeZago and Andy Josefovich, penciled by Martin Egeland, inked by Howard M. Schum, colored by Kevin Summers, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and another mysterious letterer, L.A. No, no, the entire city of Los Angeles helped letter this comic. Oh, like they each just did one little tiny bit of a letter form? Like one person just did a serif? Something like that. Well, I think the font is sans serif. Anyway... I like the way this issue starts a lot. Like, we've only talked a little about the art in this comic, but it's very appealing. You know, it's clearly modeled after cartoons the same way that Howard the Duck himself is modeled after cartoons. But it's also very expressive, and when it needs to be menacing, it really does. And that's what we see here. This first scene is in this black void filled with red liquid shadow, which also forms like sort of this lattice, this network of panel borders. And in some places, which resolves into the Dark Hunter himself in the panels in which he shows up, it's a really cool way just to show how much he owns this place, how overwhelming he is. He's also just like appealingly liquid. He just looks cool. And the Dark Hunter reveals what Artie has always suspected was the case for this whole miniseries. The Dark Hunter does not reveal this to we, the readers, although if you listeners already had an idea of what was going on, uh, I would be, you know, impressed, but like, not that impressed. And the Dark Hunter asks Artie to join him in his cause, and there's this wonderful little panel in the corner of the page where Artie is creating this thought bubble image of himself and the Dark Hunter with a sword, angrily facing off against a terrified Franklin. Like, it definitely does do a good job of casting Artie as this untrustworthy villain, which is quite the feat, given that he is an extremely sympathetic, adorable pink moppet who we love a great deal. Meanwhile, on Duckworld. Meanwhile, on Duckworld. We don't get to say that phrase enough. I, I feel like we say it just enough. That may be true. Well, Man-Thing doesn't know why they ended up here. I mean, he was just after some Scooby snacks. And the fans are closing in. Remember, Howard the Duck is a celebrity here on this bizarre version of Duckworld. There's a big old gold statue of him. 
and they're coming in like a zombie horde. So Tana Nile with her super strength, I love that she's the bruiser, swings man thing like a big goopy morning star and sweeps them all away. They go to hide in a newsstand and oh boy are there some magazine titles in here. We've got Honk, DQ, Playduck, Starduck, MacDuck, X-Ducks, Newsbeak, Rolling Egg, Dream Duck, Fashion Fowl, Pond Life, Migration Monthly, Feather, Soil, Hat World, Cigar. I really appreciate that some of those are just like things that Howard tends to have. He's a he's he's a famous hat wearer. Uh, of those magazines, Jay, do you have a favorite title? I do not. I I hate them all equally. Oh, I thought Newsbeak was pretty clever. I I giggled. I giggled aloud. I LOL'd. Uh, fair. The only place any of them can think to hide is Howard's house. You know, the one he grew up in before he got exiled from Duck World and met up with Bev and had sex with Bev in the Howard the Duck movie, which was definitely kind of weird. Howard doesn't want to go, though. He did not get along with his family. But here's the thing. Man-Thing has been deteriorating more and more, and not just because Tana Nile's been slamming him into various other ducks. He's sort of starting to decay and melt. Like, one way in which Man-Thing really seems to be different from Swamp-Thing is that Man-Thing is very, very goopy. There's also the fact that his nose looks, you know, kind of like a dick. Uh... So he's goopy and he's got a dick on his face. What a character design. Wow. Yeah, Howard Howard comments that helping Man-Thing walk is like trying to carry a ton of baby food, which... Ugh. Oh yeah, that's a very, very visceral description, isn't it? This comic is just so good at making Man-Thing gross, which I don't know that that's something I was necessarily looking for, but I respect it. And as Howard complains about his family... Um, his idyllic 50s parents come out to greet him. We've got his dad, Ward, who's got a pipe and a sweater over a shirt and tie. His mom, June, who's vacuuming in pearls. Yeah, it's the, it's the parents from Leave it to Beaver, but they're ducks. Okay. And over the most wholesome Norman Rockwell 1950s family dinner ever, the family fills Howard in on why things are the way they are, why he is a beloved celebrity on Duckworld. That's right. Dr. Richards, the greatest scientist of Duckworld, made a machine to look into other dimensions, and Howard's adventures on Earth became a smash hit. There was merchandise, there was a movie that was the highest grossing film of all time. I, I really do appreciate that nod, given what a famous flop the Howard the Duck movie was in our world. Yeah. So, okay, thing one. We have a Dr. Richards here, he's the greatest scientist of Duck World. Do you remember that Excalibur story that was about the dinosaur people world, and there was a dinosaur Dr. Richards? I do. Yeah, it's kind of like that. And thing two, that description is all very mojo world it actually reminds me a lot of mojo and spiral replacing psylocke's eyes and watching the adventures of the x-men and having them become celebrities back on mojo world but like this time there's more americana and less horrible murder i suppose so yeah back in the living room man thing continuing to decay is begging franklin to just be honest with everyone but with a shrack of foom Franklin's eyes glow, and Man-Thing explodes into goo, and, and Leech is gone too, and Franklin goes catatonic. Everything is terrible, and also covered in Man-Thing guts. Ew. 
Howard's parents and sister try to help, and Howard just tells them to shut up. These aren't them. His parents were messed up. They were real people. They were flawed people. They were nothing like this Leave it to Beaver pastiche. And that means that someone built this place, and specifically someone built this place to stroke his ego and to distract him. And it's actually very sad because his sister named Princess just won't accept this. I am too real. I am. I am. I am. I never had a little sister with a dopey name like Princess. I don't believe in you, kid. You hear me? I absolutely do not believe in you. In any of you. And their terrified faces look down at their bodies as they're erased as if with a pencil eraser. And then they look up pleading at Howard as the process completes. This is genuinely sad and horrific. Like, we don't get any follow-up about, you know, whether or not there was real life or agency or personality to any of these constructs that are being created in Duck World or possibly the other places they've been. But it raises some disturbing questions. It's kind of like that line that Vincent has in Silent Hill 3 where Heather talks about killing a bunch of monsters and Vincent just says to her, Oh, they look like monsters to you? And then nothing is ever mentioned about it again? So Howard has all of this figured out. Everyone they've seen has been related to Earth's superheroes, and Dr. Richards is revered here, and everything they've done is fun for a kid. Franklin is the one who made all of this. Yep. Yes, indeed. We know Franklin has that power. In fact, we'll later find that Franklin created an entire universe of Heroes Reborn to save some of his friends when they got blown up going into Onslaught. So, uh, yeah, that, that tracks, and our heroes are off to Dr. Richard's lab by shuttle. Uh, our heroes, in this case, being Howard, Tana Nile, and the catatonic Franklin. And the shuttle is driven by a robot duck named Herbie. Does that name ring a bell, Jay? There's Herbie from the Fantastic Four, right? Exactly, yeah. Their they're robot friend, who I found out actually first appeared in the Fantastic Four cartoon, because uh, depending on who you ask, either they didn't have rights to the Human Torch at the time because he was going to get his own show, or they were worried kids were going to set themselves on fire to be like the Human Torch. So yeah, the Fantastic Four in the, car- the cartoon of that era was Mr. Fantastic, the Invisible Woman, the Thing, and a little cartoon robot named Herbie. In the back... Of the of the shuttle, uh, Howard and Tana Nile realize they've kind of become surrogate parents and uh, suddenly kiss. Yeah, they really connect. They really bond in this strange surrogate family, uh, which means that Howard's giant duckbill and Tana's tiny lips are kissing. And I, I, I thought for far too long how that would actually work before giving up because I, I don't know that it does. But, uh, you know, good on them for trying. But Howard can't go through with anything. This can't go anywhere. Bev has his heart. And... Tana Nile gets it, and Tana Nile is still alone. There are just these little hints of pathos in this otherwise ridiculous story that I kind of love. Like, those little bits of darkness make the light work a lot better for me. They get to Dr. Richard's lab, and Reed and Sue are cardboard cutouts, but when Franklin wakes up, he doesn't care. He's happy. He's home with his family. And he disintegrates Tana Nile when she tries to contradict that. Yeah, so we have characters dropping left and right here. This is horrible. And Howard is just alone in this empty black void until the Dark Hunter's non-fingernaily longship appears, all menacing from the shadows. Except, wait a minute, the rest of the good guys are on it. Like, Artie's there, and Leech is there, and Tana Nile's there, and Man-Thing is there, and, and they're all okay on a longship. 
And they find Franklin and face off, and the Dark Hunter tells Franklin the truth. The Dark Hunter is his grief and his rage at losing his family. Yeah, given form. And I really appreciate that fake Reed Richards is still very much a scientist, despite the fact that he is literally a cardboard cutout of himself created by Franklin. What if we are merely projections from your unconscious? Random memories given shape and form by your desire to have us back. Yeah, he he gets it. And that's something that also has that little bit of pathos, because even in this perfect fantasy world, Franklin knows his dad well enough that he has to create him as somebody interested in the truth above all else. The truth, which is the thing that Franklin specifically is running away from. And the Dark Hunter explains the rest. Yeah, Franklin was able to use Man-Thing's connection to the nexus between worlds to create these various little fake worlds, the Oz world, the Seuss world, etc. And that's why Man-Thing is continually getting grossified more and more, because there's too much power going through him. He can't handle being a channel for the omnipotence that is Franklin Richards. There's a psychic fight as Franklin tries to resist the Dark Hunter, but Artie and Leech sneak up behind him, and Artie connects to Franklin's mind, at which point Franklin gets it. And there are these devastating four panels in a row of Franklin's face as he accepts what this means, what this implies, and just cries harder and harder. And here's an area where that exaggerated cartoonish style where there are just these gigantic streams of tears like a freaking anime coming out totally works. Like sometimes you can express that a lot better by not attempting to be realistic. The detail I love is that the Dark Hunter, the manifestation of his grief, is what holds and comforts him. Yeah, they just just hug, which is kind of a... I feel weird saying this about this Howard the Duck-centric miniseries, but kind of a profound statement that I really appreciate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then they're back in Man-Thing's normal, actual swamp in Earth-616 in the real world. And Franklin says, Goodbye, Mommy. Goodbye, Daddy. They were the best, and I'll never forget them. But they're gone now. And the others assure him he is not alone. He will always have them. Which, uh... Does make me wish there was a little more follow-up, because I'm not sure that they really interact as a group very much after this, but it is sweet. I love the idea of this bonkers found family after this genuine tragedy of all of these outsiders and exiles and involuntary loners and orphans, like, ending up forming this, this unit. I mean, that always gets me in stories. I'm such a fan of found family stories even the wackiest ones, and sometimes when you really get that actual pathos, especially the wackiest ones. Yeah, it's it's really lovely. So, there it is, Daydreamers. That's a series that I knew really nothing at all about other than who was in it before we decided to cover it and looked into it. What did you think? I think it's solid. It's very sweet. It's, it's I wouldn't call it core reading, and it's definitely not very eccentric. But I think it's a lot of fun. Agreed, yeah. And I am always happy to see more Artie and Leech, especially since they don't do a ton in Generation X. Like, it's nice to see them get a little bit more of the focus, even if this is perhaps more of a Franklin Richards, Howard the Duck story. It's also just fun that Marvel decided, you know what we're going to publish three issues of? 
this, and then they did, and here it remains, even if it is kind of hard to find and obscure. So normally this would be where we rolled into listener questions and then the outro, but of course this is the giant size winter special, so instead of those, um, we have something far, far better, and that is X-Line architect um, and writer Jonathan Hickman. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I try not to talk about these things when I'm in the middle of them, so... (laughs) And yeah, here we are at the end of your, I, I think we can all say very game-changing uh, run as a writer of X-Men, as the the head of X for the entire Krakoan era. Yeah, so we've, we've, and we've, we've talked to a lot of other folks from, from the X writers room over the course of the last couple of years, talked a lot about Krakoa, but I feel like yours is the voice that's been, while most present in the comic, kind of missing from that conversation, and... Before we get to the big Krakoa stuff, before we talk about the run, I kind of want to go back to the questions that we tend to ask guests from the start, um, which is about your history with the X-Men, like where you came into reading them, you know, before you were writing them, kind of what you see as as the core or the heart of the idea of of the X-Men, what it what it means as a title, as a concept. Well, um, I've, I've been pretty... Uh, I've said it a bunch of times in a bunch of different places. I, I was a DC guy growing up, except for the X-Men. Like that was that that outside of like occasional blips that caught my attention, like uh, Micronauts or something like that. The X-Men is the only Marvel book that I consistently read, uh, you know, from when I was a kid until um, I was I've become an old man. So um, I'm pretty sure that. Uh, I jumped in um, in the 130s, um, so right when you know Dark Phoenix Saga was getting ready to happen. Um, I, I picked up an issue when I was at on our uh, on a when we were on vacation with our family. Uh, I think we were in the mountains, and there was a spinner rack in 7-Eleven, and I was like, "This looks cool," uh, and um, and obviously it was. Um, two amazing creators at the height of their power and um you know it only took one and then they uh they had me hooked so and so you started then was that something that you kept reading kind of like for the long haul did you come and go over the course of x history i think i probably did not miss an issue of x-men um you know, it was one of my religious spies, like the Legion of Superheroes um, or or Teen Titans. Like like that would that was kind of my my whole generation. And I don't think I missed an issue of X-Men until 300 and something from that point. Um, and so obviously I saw a lot of like really great stuff. And um, I probably pulled back what what issues were um uh i know it started over with x-men number one and and all of that kind of stuff when jim and them left he shifted over to that about what 270 280 something like that um a little bit before that because i know that x-men uh were in the 50s on adjective lists which lines up with the 330s on um on uncanny Okay. Um, so somewhere about two years after that was when I started missing issues, you know. Um, 
I still would pick it up anytime I would go into the store. Um, obviously, I, I did not miss uh, really great runs after that, um, as I've referenced them and um, clearly written love letters to some of them. Um, but, um, you know, it remains my favorite Marvel property. It remains the thing that I, I loved as a kid. And um, uh, clearly I had some ideas about what I would do going into it. And um, it was a real trip to get to do it. So so a lot of comics writers have sort of their their pocket pitch of what they would do if they could take over a title that they'd, they'd grown up loving. Have you had one for X-Men for a fairly long time, and has it always been this radical reimagining? Or has that evolved over time? No, I mean, I, I would say that, well, the first X-Men thing that I ever did was a Bobby and Sam team up for Astonishing Tales, right? And that felt like 12 or 13-year-old me doing a Sienkiewicz impersonation and, and you know, just doing those guys having a good time. Um, I got that out of my system. Obviously, um, while House of X and Powers of Ten were, uh, you know, had had a nostalgic tent, a patina of that. Um, really, the mo- most of that came from me writing a document about what was wrong with the X Men books and what we needed to do to fix them, um, and um, you know, me very subtly asking for the job every year. Um, until um, until I left when I did Secret Wars and I never thought I would get to do it because I did not believe that I was coming back to Marvel or I, and I wasn't going to go to DC because I was uh, I had a bunch of screenwriting get, gigs and a bunch of you know uh, television stuff I was doing and I had all, a bunch of independent books that I wanted to do um, but it just so happened that um, I had an itch that needed scratching and uh, it all kind of fell together and yeah what a status quo shift we got from that i mean i remember when house and powers were coming out every wednesday i would pick up my comics and that was the topic of conversation i would walk into whether it was among other patrons or the guy that ran the shop uh checking in with me and so seeing something so radical like i mean jay you and i have been ex fans for quite a long time as well but i think for us we've talked about this as kind of the the biggest reinvention of the line, I mean, probably since giant size, probably since the the all new, all different era, way back in the day. I would, I, I think that the thing that tends to come up um, when when I'm looking at this as status quo shift is really Morrison, as a, a point of of departure. Um, mm-hmm. Just in, in terms of of just really feeling like something had substantially shifted in in the in not only the comics themselves but the world that they were taking place in. And so was that something that you had to convince Marvel of? Like, hey, I'm going to rebuild what the X world looks like in a way that's never been done. Or were they on board from the start? No, I mean, I had to I was at the company. I was I was I had agreed to a new contract and I was going to be there for a little while. And um, the assumption was uh, that uh, and, and the Fox deal had been done. Right, so we could do X stuff again. Uh, the assumption was that I would do that. I was up for doing that, but I absolutely had to go in and pitch everybody and all the editors. And I mean, before it even got to the other creators, I had to sell the entire company on doing it. Um, and um, 
it, it went well. Um, most everybody in the room got it. The people that didn't get it had a couple notes. We integrated those into it. Um, they weren't bad notes. Um, I would have told them that they were. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it was, it was, I had to, I had to sell everybody on it. And then the, my favorite thing is going into the room and when you get to get together with all the other writers and uh, you get to pitch all of them the book, you know, because obviously their take is incredibly different than what the editorial or the executive take is going to be. Um, and it's so much fun when you get to pitch a book that everybody has a bunch of questions about, well, what about this? What about that? And, um, I, I love doing that because you find out if you're full of shit or not, right? Like you find <laughs> out if your if your ideas can withstand a bunch of professionals asking you very hard questions about it. Uh, it remains that the, every time I've gotten to do that at Marvel, when I've pitched something really, really big, like when I pitched my first fantastic four, the first time I pitched that and I, um, everybody thought I was insane because I was pitching. I could tell them what was going to happen for years. Right. Um, um, I didn't know that was arrogant. I thought I was just being enthusiastic. (laughs) Right. It's Um, a fine line. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah. I was way over it. I was so far past it. Um, but, um, you know, and same thing for when I pitched Avengers and then when I had to go in and sell everyone on secret wars and you know, how big the plans that were, I love those retreats because you find out whether you've got it or not. Um, uh, especially on the bigger stuff cause you're pitching it more than once. Like you pitch it, everybody has questions. They go home six months later. They've been angry at you for six months. They've got, they've, they're prepared this time. You know, you get the real cross-examination. Uh, I love that. I love that. I love knowing whether or not you have it or you have it. You know, um, it's a good feeling. So, so that, that kind of brings up an obvious question, which is what changed from your original concept to what we finally saw on the page? Um, were there any really significant revisions? Well, if you're talking about from what I pitched to what happened in House of X and Powers of Ten very minuscule stuff. Like I, like we knew all of that top to bottom. People had a couple of notes about whether or not, um, it, the tone about the tone, you know, how dark or how it should be, how positive it should be. And, um, whether or not we should use some of the, um, characters that we were using little stuff, things that were not a problem. Definitely. Once we got into the writer's room and, it became this giant thing, um, even bigger than what we thought it was going to be because, um, um, you know, house of X and powers 10 was such a success sales and marketing and, um, just the conversation that it stimulated. It was, it was such a, a, a big thing that all of those books launched with incredible velocity. And then the line, continued to grow and then the world changed in the middle of it. And I mean, it was just, it just became, um, a completely different thing than what I originally planned. Um, but I think the soul of what the experiment was, which was, can we do an integrated line of comics? Uh, I feel like that was a success. Um, so, um, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's, that's kind of how I remember it. 
Yeah, our impression from the other writers we've had on and spoken to is of a very, very sort of tightly knit and collaborative writer's room. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that's true. I think that's accurate. Um, I played a lot of sports growing up. I have zero problem operating in a team environment and fostering that. And I feel like that's what we produced. Um, everybody's ideas were heard. The best ideas um, or the most interesting ideas or the ideas that presented the most complications or the most possible story ideas tended to win, win out. Um, no one was afraid to pitch something that was ridiculous or absurd or small Right. You know, because I have a tendency to pitch really, really big. What's the big version of this? What's the, you know, more dramatic version of this? And not everybody likes to write that way. Um, and so it's it's I felt like it was my responsibility uh, to meet, to foster uh, all of the creators so that they would um one, enjoy doing the books, uh, but two, that they would feel like they were growing as an artist and that meant that I had to meet them, um, you know, where they were as artists, not try and morph them into being some um, lesser version of me or, or, or anything like that. Like, I, I don't, I'm, that's not interesting. Um, so, um, and, you know, like I said, the world changed in the middle of it, and we, in a lot of ways, you know, I'm not a super touchy-feely person, but it became very therapeutic and very um, a very protective, sheltered place where we supported each other, uh, not just in the work that we were doing, but in, you know, how we were doing personally. And, um, you know, I think the world of all those guys. And that level of, I mean, that level of supportiveness, like, there was also a lot of conversation around those things in terms of the the Krakoan paradigm, in terms of having this this safe uh, family world, this space where everybody belonged. At the same time, that it was a space that was a little bit separate, and that tension was definitely always fascinating during House and Powers, and and continues to be. And I'm I'm very curious, like, how was that? How was that for you as the during House and Powers versus how it kind of develops during Dawn of X, that mutant separatist state kind of sort of that Krakoa turned into? I, I, I was flying by myself during House of X and Powers of Ten. Um, you know, we had um, started to get the room together in the middle of it, but I was already like it, it was a it was a completed thought, and so. Um, obviously, thematically, there was a lot of stuff that I was working with um, that that has to do with um, us versus them, and 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 what what is being accepted, and what is it like to have a culture, and all of that stuff that's you know on the page in the books. Um, what was interesting to me um, was the interpretation that the other writers had of what I did. I knew, I knew what I was doing. Like, I knew what I meant. What was interesting were the little cracks where they either um, uh, pushed a different idea into it or, they, uh, or it became a little divergent or they read the context and the subtext as something completely different than what I meant, which is, which is 
again, the real reason why I don't like to talk about work while the work is being done, because it robs the reader of this awesome thing where they get to engage with the art and tell themselves their own story. I love that. And I, and I hate it when people, I hate it when people screw with my art, uh, my interpretation of what their art is by telling me what it really meant and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, I, I, again, as an experiment of, can we build a writer's room where everyone is equal and everybody's opinion counts and, um, everybody is responsible for their book, but their book has to live in the in the ecosystem of all the other books. Um, I, I um, as an experiment, I, I found it fascinating. There was there was never a time when I when I was bored. Yeah, I want to talk more about Krakoa, and I I mentioned status quo changes, and one of the big ones, one of the central changes to the status quo with Krakoa. And what feels like one of the kind of most direct simultaneous celebrations of and challenges to the the old sort of superhero comic canard of the revolving door of death is the resurrection protocols. So you've written a lot of superhero comics. How does the landscape change when death ceases to be permanent within the story as well as within the publishing paradigm? Well, I'm sure there's a meta thing there about is it effective storytelling anymore when everybody does it to prove their bona fides of what a what a um, dramatic writer they are, right? Um, like I remember when it was a big deal that the Human Torch died in the Fantastic Four book that I wrote. It wouldn't be a big deal anymore; It'd just be something that we that we do. Um, so I looked at it as two things. One, I wanted to challenge the idea. Well, three things, really. I wanted to challenge the idea of what a dramatic story is if I took a stake um, off the table that in the X-Men books in particular uh, seemed to be so overused and so superfluous and just uh, so tired, so tired, right? Um, and then I wanted to, to use that um, as, a, as a way to make what was going on on Krakoa alien to the human experience, right? There's a thing I'm, I'm doing with the readers in a lot of places where, where it doesn't feel like the X-Men. It feels like it's not human, right? It's not relatable to the human experience. And that was kind of a thing that I was going for where it was, it it was, it was built in there to, uh, underscore the us versus them of it all. Right. Like, like we like to pretend like breaking the fourth wall of it. We like to pretend that as the reader, we're the X-Men. Right. But I wanted to short circuit that in a lot of ways, too, and and put it in a in a in a position where where um, maybe you wouldn't feel that way. Right. Like you, I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to even push it that way, too. And then that goes for the relationships and all of that kind of stuff, too. Um but the, the the big thing is that I wanted to introduce the idea of um, of of mutants working together to defeat what was their oldest enemy, which was a recurring trope in the books that people were you know that was overused. And um, this isn't one of the three reasons, but also I didn't want to fucking have to bring everybody back in an issue and do it in a way <laughs> that I didn't you know because. 
I mean, there's a bunch of people dead that I didn't want to be dead because we were starting this from a big point, especially when you're talking about the, the, uh, the quote, evil mutants, unquote, right? That were, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge complication there, too. So I was just like, no, uh, we're, we'll just move on past that and, um, and, and started a sprint instead of, instead of building up speed. And talking about resurrection, talking about bringing characters back, I mean, yeah, obviously at, at the point where House and Powers happened, I mean, we had just gone through an era where there'd been so much death, but it's also been so much fun seeing so many old favorites show up, like whether it's in a focal position or in the background, like freaking Sync is on the X-Men now. Who sure. thought we would ever see Sync again? The new X-Men Academy X kids that I can never shut up about in our podcast, they're around in the background as well. And so, I mean, it's a, perhaps a hackneyed question, but did you have any favorites that you were specifically excited to use this new storytelling tool to get back into the spotlight or even just back into the world? Well, Sync, Sync was way up there. Um, I, it's really weird because um, I, I feel like the whole Generation X cast was fantastic. I mean, just fantastic. And for some reason... Um, it never got to the, it's the eternal youth problem of, of Marvel time. And they happen to happen in a, in a, in a really, really, um, in a really small window whenever you compress the top and bottom together. And same thing for the, for the next generations of kids that have come along that somebody else's favorite, favorite mutants. Um, whenever the, whenever Cyclops doesn't get older, right, you're just squishing, you're squishing everything down. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, initially I wanted to do a generation X book too. Um, but you know, that, that's kind of interesting what the initial line of books was going to be and, and what I hoped it was going to be and, and what we were pushing for and then what it morphed into. And Love to come back to that. Yeah, all, all of that is, is really interesting. But my idea was was we should just have the generations of the... We should have one book for each of the generations of Academy kids, right? Like we should have a New Mutants book. We should have a Generation X book. We should have, you know, on and on and on and on. And then on the flip side of that, we should have a Hellfire Club, uh, you know, um, you know, Emma's kids, you know, generation book. And um, the, the, the list of the thing, the thing about working on the X-Men with all of that continuity is there's so much to mine and there's so many directions that you could go in. Um, and that at some point it just becomes about economical choices and um, people actually have to write, want to write things, right? Like you can't say, you know, no, no, Jerry. What you really, the book you really want to write is this. Um, so I had, again, that was one of the first things I had to really let go of is these are going to be the titles and these are what these books are. It was, you know, what is your pitch and let's make it work. So if we're talking mining continuity, I feel like we have to talk about Moira, about the other great big, holy crap, everything we knew was wrong shift. That right there, I think that was certainly one of the, um, and especially right now, as you know, Inferno continues, one of the part, one of the, mystery the continuing mysteries that was always of of greatest interest to me that we have this character who we've seen so very much of in continuity and it turns out she was pulling one over on not just 
the other characters in the Marvel Universe, but also we, the readers. So, like, as Jay and I go through 90s X-Men comics coverage, it's always interesting to see Moira have conversations with various characters and to look at it through the the lens of what we now know, continuity-wise, to be the case with her. And so, in House and Powers, it's it's been fascinating to see, like, all the bits that are not explained— and I know that for a while there was talk of maybe even doing a, a, a series about Moira. So I, I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, your decisions to reveal versus not reveal certain aspects of how Moira's true past intersects with what we've seen on the page. Willing to use her in that role to begin with. Um, well, uh, going in reverse order, um, that's how we got Al into the office was I seduced him with a uh, with with uh Al, come do this Moira book, right? Um, and he was like, I don't know. And then he thought about it, and all of it started to click for him. Um, all of that changed, though, of course, whenever uh, it became clear that I was I was leaving, right? And so um, and so we pushed we pushed all that stuff into a box that blows up, um, you know, blows up a little bit in Inferno, but it blows up a lot more later. Um, uh, and so. Uh, as far as why we used Moira, um, it needed to be someone who um, we we didn't know was a mutant, right? Uh, and it needed to be a power set that um, would al- would allow um, us to explain why they had the the why they were scheming as hard as they were, why they wanted to. Um, go to the ends that we that that we were going to take them like why do you what what is it with this fascination of always building a nation right it's failed so many times before why do you keep trying to do it because we feel like that's a solution that 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 would work on the generational timeline right um and I just love the trial and error of trying to figure it out. It also kind of explains um, the big reason was, uh, you know, she got the legacy virus. And I was like, I think that's the biggest tell I've ever seen in my entire life. And I know that Chris didn't feel that way. And I know that he wrote around it. And I know that the reason why um, narratively why you do it is to humanize it and not mutinize it. Right. And to say it affects all of us and not just them. Right. Um this is cooler than that, you know. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that 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 people pushed up against that pretty hard. Um, but I, I also, I also thought it worked with why Xavier has always been the way that he's been, right? He's always had. It, it's almost like he's almost Breaking Bad, and he always goes a little bit too far, and he's always pushing it in a way that is completely contrary to this uh, pudding that he is, you know, that he is preaching to everybody, right? Um, And and it just kind of all clicked as a story, right? Um, Of course it doesn't work 100% because it's a retcon, and of course it doesn't, um, you know, there's plenty of issues where um, I'm sure that it really rubs incorrectly. Um, but sometimes you have to, uh, make radical changes whenever you're dealing with that kind of, that kind of, uh, strata in the continuity and, um, you know, we made it, we made a choice. So, but I, I, I loved her as the idea of it being her as her 
not being a human, but pretending to be a human and actually wanting to be a human being the motivation for why she became a antagonist and protagonist in the background. Um, there's a whole lot more that is post Inferno that, that, you know, it's, um, blows that up even bigger, but, um, um, I don't know. Interesting choice. Interesting choice. So there's been so much talk over the history of X-Men of, of creating a, a third voice, a third perspective to the Charles Magneto dichotomy there. And it feels like this is where we, in some ways, finally got that. What we needed was something that was just outside that simple binary that was like, no, 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 this is much bigger than either of you are thinking about right now. I, that's the idea behind the council, is that is that I, I felt like there were voices that had... If you, if you took the mutants and you removed death, and therefore the ultimate version of danger... Right. And so and then they would begin to build a culture. I thought that there would be a lot of questions that would come from a lot of really, really logical places. Um, And that's why I made the choices that I made of who sits on the council. Right. Some of them are deals with the devil and some of them are are pragmatic decisions. Um, Others were bartered and traded for people who wanted to become powerful, just like Charles and and Xavier are. And now we're in a position where it's shifting even more um, and it will continue to shift until it reaches um, its apex version of um, most dramatic storytelling possible. You know, so. So if we're talking the council and we're talking drama, I feel like we have to talk sinister. This version of Sinister, one of the things I love about Mr. Sinister is just how varied portrayals of the character are. And so seeing this version that is just this delightfully smugly wicked has been so enjoyable, but it's also very much a contrast to, say, the way the character was introduced. And I know Jay and I have often been curious, is that a a take on Sinister that you're pulling from a specific era, say Karen Gillan's era or a different one? Or is this just like the way Sinister is for you? Uh, No. I mean, I I thought he was a total pants character for the longest time and really terrible until Kieran unlocked it. Um, And I used it in Secret Wars, you know, like he was a big, big part of that. Um, And I never stopped... um, I, I never stopped stopped building that for Kieran to come back in, even when Kieran didn't know that he was coming back in. Um, and so, um, so I I I I, I tricked him. Uh, I pulled my own little sinister thing there, um, and Kieran is where he belongs. And man, um, the stuff that he has lined up with council wise is uh, and sinister wise is pretty pretty great so and in the meantime we got the version of sinister in hellions that we got i know that was a a book chain i fell in love with in the meantime we talked a lot about the dynamic in the writer's room and you know a bit about about what you had to sell editorially and one of one of the things that we've noticed and appreciated and also found ourselves hitting against the edges of periodically um, the degree of, of explicit um, yeah, shifts in, in paradigms of, of what 
what we got to see on page in terms of range of genders and sexuality in X-Men comics. How hard did you have to push the connected bedrooms? I have been wondering this ever since that diagram came out. So in regards to what we're allowed to show on the page, uh, obviously we serve a lot of masters. Uh, We serve Disney and Marvel, and we have our own editorial group, and we have our own proofreader group. Um, I like to think that we push it as far as we possibly can. Um, I I like to think that that, uh, we have creators who want to tell uh, stories that are... um, very important to them as creators. And I think the most that I could do, and I feel like the most that I did while I was there was I support them wholeheartedly. And if I have to talk to the bosses for them or with them, um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And um, I think for the most part, we're moderately happy with what we've gotten on the page and moderately happy with, um, with the process. There are times when people are not, and there are times when people are, are totally happy with how it went. Um, that's just life in the corporate lane, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we don't own any of this stuff, um, and we, we do the best job that we can. Going back to the story, um, one of the things Miles and I both ended up putting in our, our notes um, going, going into this um, was the, the idea of machines and AIs as the ultimate antagonist for mutants. Um, rather than humans. And I'd like to hear more about that, where that came from, but there's also a specific link to that that I, I was wondering if, if you, can, you can speak to, and that's um, where, where danger falls into all of that. Uh, it's a great question. Um, uh, I can't get into it because it may have to do with some stories that we're going to tell and, and all of that kind of stuff, but um, specifically in regards to uh, technology creep in the idea of human evolution, right, which is really what we're playing with here. We live in uh, some amazing times. Um, you know, the, the kind of stuff that we're right on the cusp of being able to do in terms of you know, de- designer genetics and, and man-machine interface and um, um, like real AI, um, is, is, is going to radically change our lives. In fact, um, I talk to my kids about this all the time, about how your, you know, sons, your mother and I, (laughs) back in our day, um, (laughs) but we saw, um, what I think are the two most pivotal events of the last 50 years, you know, Lori and I lived through those. And one was the fall of the Berlin Wall, right, which was the birth of globalization in a, in a very real way. And the other one was the Internet, which was, you know, a massive, massive destabilizing and, uh, you know, collectivizing uh, kind of kind of um, uh, breakthrough that both of those things completely changed society, like across the world, right? Not just in the U.S., but across the world. And I told my kids, I was like, it's been crazy how watching how human beings have changed because of those two things, like the way that our perspectives have changed, the way that our, just everything about society has changed and the way that the changes in society have changed us. But you guys, the stuff that you're going to see in your life 
um, and that I'm probably going to see in mine and you're going to see in yours, um, are going to probably dwarf those two events. Um, and I think it's cool to tell a story about that. And I think it's cool to tell a story about how uh, what we've perceived as a binary state of humanity, which is us and them and humans and mutants, is possible for it to be completely dwarfed by this third thing that's always been ticking there in the back of the X-Men books. Uh, if you can remember when, uh, when, when Grant kicked off their X-Men run, the big thing let off with a Sentinel event, right? And, it, and it's kind of a thing that has always shown up. Uh, in the books and and I you know I was just pushing it to what I think the logical place that society is going to go because the idea was that this is a change that can last for years um, if not longer um, and so that is where all of that came from um, as far as narratively and storytelling wise there's so much meat there um, just between like stuff like Danger and Warlock and a lot of other stuff that's you know you're get, getting ready to see um, what we did with Omega Sentinel and um, you know I it's it's all of that stuff is just going to be really really interesting and and I think it matters and I think it's going to matter more with each passing year and um, I I think we're I, I think we're getting ready to enter into a period of time where the idea of binary society is getting ready to get completely annihilated in an, in a fascinating way. And um, we're better than the X-Men to do those stories. So, I was especially interested with the ways that you redefined the relationship of the technarchy and the phalanx. The phalanx, this, this group of villains who I feel like in, in this incarnation of X-Men have finally found the perfect place like they should be the technological big bads in a lot of senses i love that um i th probably one of the like i have a lot of things that obviously i'm not going to get to do because i'm leaving right um and probably the thing that i uh am most bummed about is i was going to do an imperial guard book um, with Bobby and Sam, and it was going to be them on the other side of all of that uh, technology stuff in the Shi'ar and the Imperial Guard, and Star Jammers would have been part of it, I'm sure. But it would have been a big space book seeding all of that for when we eventually, obviously, we're going to crash it all together. Um, um, but it was it was going to seed all of that in a way. Um, in a pretty intense way. Um, it was so I'm, I'm, so I am bummed about that. That's one of the things because, you know, I clearly set them up to do all of that when I did those four issues of the mutants, right? Like that was clearly where we were going to go with all of that. So, um, I have a couple like that, a couple of things that I, I really, really was looking forward to doing that. I'm just not going to get to do, but, uh, they're in, it's in great hands. So, are there any of those that you'd be able to talk about? Some of those other what might have been? Um, I don't think so because all of it is folded into um, um, stuff 
that is going to be used. Actually, actually, I do know one. Um, you might get a kick out of this. You may hate it. Um, so all of those uh, giant-sized X-Men, in, uh, those giant-sized issues, right, um, all of those changed, um, which is why they're kind of kind of a mess. Um, what the first one was going to be, um, I don't think anybody will care if I tell this. Uh, what the first one was going to be was when Storm is screwed up uh, and injured, injured or whatever, um, and and Gene and Emma come out of the psychic rescue of it all. You were going to find out that what was wrong with her, she was she was just pregnant, right? Um, and she was pregnant with her and and T'Challa's kid, right? And then the next couple issues would have been her having to go into the world and having the kid and the kid would be raised in the world so it would be this heir to two kingdoms who didn't know the mother or the father but you would have gotten um, all of you would have gotten a whole bunch of stuff coming out of the world that would have crashed into all of that and the reason why we didn't do that is because um, we Marvel had other um Marvel had other Black Panther plans that got that got pushed in, and 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 also they didn't want to go in that direction. But it was too late to change it. Russell was already halfway through drawing the book, so all of that stuff in those giant size books that were they were going to be about, all of those changed on the fly, which is why um, they're a little bit of a mess. So, uh, but that was actually going to be a really, really cool thing for some stuff that was going to happen later. Was that there was going to be this unifying? We were going to get the Avengers next kid, you know, their 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 kid from the future, cartoony thing. Um, and um, there was some stuff that was going to happen much later on um, that that kid would be a really big part of because he would be able to unify. He'd be a leader of, he would be a, you know, quote, leader, unquote, of two different societies, right? Um, Which would have mattered a lot later on, so. That had so much context to those giant size specials. I'm just, I'm just like turning all that over in my head. Also, that may be the first Avengers next mention we have heard from a creator, and that excites me a great deal. (laughs) Bendis loved that stuff. Uh, he, he snuck it into his Avengers run at one point, I think. I'm almost positive he did. Um... But but uh, but yeah yeah no I mean I, that was a that was that was my first no I think I got I think I, I was like what is this word no that you're telling me <laughs> what do you mean I can't do everything I want to do <laughs> so you're you're getting ready to leave the line and one of one of the last books that's that's sort of the the climax of this run is Inferno um, which has been fantastic which is going to continue to be i feel like we 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 can't spoil four on this because it's going to be a couple days until it comes out but maybe we maybe we can record something that we can we can release afterwards um but inferno is also a really loaded place to go back to and to call back to um especially in in a story that's very very different from the original what makes this inferno inferno well, um, one of the things that we uh, very clearly have been doing throughout um, um, after House of X and Powers of Ten was taking names of old um, old Marvel properties 
and retooling them and making them new properties. We did it with fallen angels and hellions and marauders. And, um, we, we did that for a lot of reasons. Um, one is we didn't want to give away what the books were. And so giving them fake ish titles, um, that they would grow into really, really worked to, uh, add the, because, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember or not, but when we announced Marauders, everybody was like, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard, you know? And we were like, yeah, you'll be all right. You'll be okay with that. Um, same thing with Hellions, you know? It was like, you, you'll, you'll, you'll be okay, you know? Um, but uh, obviously, um, uh, I love the name. <laughs> so much it is hands down the best marvel uh x-men event name or crossover name of all time um and i seeded it a couple of different places um and when it came time to because it was originally titled a completely different thing um um, well, it's been announced. Kieran's book has been announced, right? Immortal X-Men yes. is announced? Right. Yes. We were originally going to call it Immortal X-Men, um, was what we were originally going to call it. And then the story got tweaked a little bit, and I wanted to save the title for Kieran's book. And so we were like, uh, Destiny's coming back. She wants to set everything on fire. Fuck it. Let's call it Inferno. You know, so mm-hmm. that's... Uh, it's a very non-glamorous uh, uh, story of why it's called Inferno. I was going to say, if anyone's earned the right to burn down the world, you know, we're talking about death as a revolving door, but I genuinely can't think of an X character who's stayed consistently dead longer than Destiny. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I can say this. I, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, if not, what are they going to do? Fire me? Um I'm just kidding. Uh, they would fire me. Um, <laughs> so I screwed my head. Uh, the way my head works is that I'm never um, like if you ask me if I'm happy with something, I'll just talk about all the things I got wrong. Right. Like like it's like an engineer brain. Like all I see are flaws. Right. Like the weaknesses in it. Um, and so it's, I have a very difficult time enjoying being done with something because that just means I had to quit. Because it wasn't done, it was not finished. You know that kind of thing. My the thing I probably got the most angry about, that was my biggest screw up in this entire thing, was there's an issue of X Men where uh, it was going to press. It was so late, and we had to just had to get it out of the door. And there was a lot. There was a there was a page that needed to be redialogued for you know, various reasons. And so I rewrote some dialogue really, really quickly. And one of the lines that I rewrote in the dialogue was, uh, havoc saying something like, um, Petra and sway are back on earth. They went back through the gateway and they're back on earth. Petra and sway are dead, right? Like, like they're, they exist only in Vulcan's mind. Um, and so he was supposed to be imagining them the whole time. Like all of the scenes that you see Petra and Sway in, that's just him imagining it. But then I had Havoc say the line, so I fucked that whole thing up. Like it's, it was, I was so angry after we after it went to press, and I was like, wait a minute, did I just? God damn it! I cannot believe I just fucked that up because obviously I was going to do a bunch of Vulcan stuff where 
anyway, the point is, is that is that all the X Men that died before Cerebro became Cerebro are dead. Like you, there's no, there's nothing to stick in the body, right? And so we shouldn't have Thunderbird back, and we shouldn't have Petro, and we shouldn't have Sway, right? And those are the three big ones. And then Petro and Sway, sadly, uh, were going to exist only in Vulcan's head. And then we had a way to bring Thunderbird back. Um, and so, um, like that sucks. <laughs> like, like that's like that's like that's like my worst, the worst thing of of um, of 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 my entire time on the of the of the books is that I screwed that up. Um, and that's just kind of how my head kind of kind of works. But um, I don't know what else were we talking about. <laughs> um. Let's see. We'd been talking about Destiny being the character who was dead for the. Oh longer. right, right. Destiny being dead longer than everybody else. All right. So, um, I'm I'm thinking in publication time rather than continuity time. There. Sh- sure, but 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 like, um, that's an awesome character, and that's a character that um, like I it soon as soon as I knew what we were doing with more like with Moira, I knew that I was going to bring Destiny back like the way that I did because um, it makes sense that she would have caught her in one of the timelines, right? Um, but that character is so good. One, the design is immaculate. Like, that is oh, a, yeah. that is such an amazing design. Um, and two, the character actually lived on because they were so important. Um, you know, they did the Books of Destiny and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so the character's reach was felt beyond even after, after she died. And I, it, it was the first character that I wanted, um, I'm going to have to have this character back. Right. Um, and so, um, I'm so happy that she's back. What a power couple those two are, you know, um, um, good stuff, good stuff coming up there. So. And I mean, I don't know if this was intentional at all, but I know what Jay and I were reminded so much of with really Mystique's role in Inferno and in the X-Line leading up to Inferno was something that came in right before your Secret Wars, which was Mystique at the end of Wolverines, who basically kind of did burn down the world because she couldn't get Destiny back. And this is just such a wonderful echo of that. Like, I realize that was a somewhat obscure series that probably not a ton of people have read, but it's just such a beautiful continuity juxtaposition for those who have yeah yeah i mean i um i think her motivation is very easy for people to understand it's why people forget that she's such a bad guy you know is because the motivation is so pure it's the same thing with dr doom it's why you can get away with presenting dr doom as noble and all of that kind of stuff because the motivation is easily understandable look that's the beauty of that's the beauty of marvel comics um um, you know, that they're street level um, and, and in the real world and therefore ultimately more relatable than the DC books, which, you know, doesn't matter to me. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I love the DC stuff. But it's just, it's, I think you've seen in pop culture, just especially with, you know, how successful Marvel's been over the past, you know, 10 years. Um, just how much people lock into those characters. So, uh, and this is just another example of it. And so with Inferno, that's the end of your run 
with the Xbox. What has that looked like? Was this sort of how you envisioned uh, moving on from the Xbox being? Has that changed? Oh, goodness, no. I, I, um, I've never not finished a story that I've started before, right? Uh, and so it's been really bizarre from that perspective. Um, saying that, it's become a communal story and it's going to be fine and all those guys are going to crush it. But for me, it's a very, very weird thing. Um, and like I was telling you guys earlier, it's hard for me to look back on the last three years and not see things that we've failed to do or missed out on. Uh, but if I'm being fair to myself or fair to the to the other creators and, and everybody that works at Marvel, um, we had so many successes that it's impossible for it not to be not for me not to look at it as a positive thing. Right. Um, uh, we learned we learned so much um, just how you run that kind of line. Um, the experiment of doing a weekly 12-issue book by one writer, which has not been done by either publisher, and what that does to the velocity of books and what you can launch out of it. Um, obviously, the shared, um, you know, how how much the fans got out of the interconnectedness of the books. Um, it's it's um, what we did digitally uh, was uh, unreal. Um, which nobody knows about. Nobody sees any of that, right? Uh, nobody sees what we've done on, in the trades, um, you know. And our hardcovers have been have been ridiculously pro- profitable. Um, we did, you know. I had the idea of doing a Shonen Jump magazine of just reprinting everything, and um, and so we did those, um, you know, Dawn of X and Reign of X and all of those trades. You know, we're up to. You know, we're over, there's a lot of them. Um, And I thought that they would fail because they would be too expensive because of the price point. But there are people who love to read them that way. And and, um, that has been a, a, you know, pretty smashing success. So, um, and then, you know, on top of that, um, some creators really became um, much better creators. Some artists got elevated to, you know, uh, life-changing levels of of, of popularity, um, you know, all of that stuff is Jordan Jordan uh, White and the rest of the X Men editors learned, um, you know, a, a very useful skill of a whole different way of doing all of this, and um, uh, you know, Marvel made a little money, so it's all good. And for what it's worth, like we're pretty um pretty pretty deep in in the X Men world, and. This era has been and continues to be just the most exciting time to be an X-Men fan, certainly of, like, my time in the fandom. Like, I may not have the, I am 10 years old and there's a cartoon of this, uh, rabid child enthusiasm, but, like, as a reader, as, uh, as, as a critic, this has been phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a remarkable era to be both reading X-Men and watching the larger cultural conversations around it. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for coming on and um, for your time. Um, where can folks look you up and find other stuff you've written? Uh, I've done a few books. You can find them online, probably at Amazon, evilamazon.com. Uh, you know, you can uh, find them on the Comixology app or, uh, or Marvel Unlimited and all of that kind of stuff. I've done some books at Image. Obviously, you can get those various places, um, barnesandnobles.com. Uh, 
you know, uh, at this point, um, the library is large enough that, um, there's probably something in there that you haven't read. And if you have read all of it, my children, thank you. My wife thanks you. Um, you know, um, it's out there. You'll be able to find it. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show. It's been a blast talking to you. We're incredibly excited to see Inferno wrap up in just a couple days and to see what you do next. Great, guys. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. And now... The 7th Annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence. First, of course, are the modern corpos, four X-books published in the year 2021. In those, we have Best Writer. That goes to Jonathan Hickman for X-Men and Inferno. Best Line Artist. For the second year in a row, this one's going to go to Rod Race for New Mutants. Best Colorist. This award goes to Eric Arseniega for Excalibur. Best Ongoing Series. Our best ongoing series is Hellions by Zeb Wells, Steven Segovia, and company. Best miniseries or one-shot? Surprising no one, this goes to Inferno by Jonathan Hickman, Valeria Shiti, and company. The Cyclops Has a Good Day Award will be placed on hold this year in light of general level of current quality of life. Beyonder Award for Extreme Existentialism. Absolutely goes to... Way of X and X-Men The Onslaught Revelation by Cy Spurrier, Bob Quinn, and company. The About Damn Time Award goes to Inferno Number 1 for Destiny's Resurrection with runners-up X-Men The Trial of Magneto Number 3 for confirming that Polaris finally finished her doctorate. And X-Men Legends Number 2 for finally confirming Adam X, the Extreme, as the third Summers brother. Uh, kind of. Isn't he technically the fourth? Uh, yeah, yeah, Gabriel got there first. Although I think he's younger. It's complicated. The Irene Adler Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series. We have so many exciting options. We're going to give it this year to Immortal X-Men by Kieran Gillen and Lucas Wernick. The Best Non-X Marvel Comic. We both chose, independently and immediately, the Marvel Unlimited Infinity comic, It's Jeff, by Kelly Thompson and Guri Hiru. The Black Hat Award for basically being a supervillain already. Hank McCoy. Character Distillation. This award goes to WizKid in Sword Number 10. Well, that escalated quickly. This goes to the X-Men Green arc of X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic. Dark. The award that walks like a man for events or stories of unprecedented scale. Planet Size X-Men. If you've read it, you know. The But Make It Fashion Award for Most Runway-Worthy Character or Costume Design. Goes about 30 to 40 times to Russell Dodderman for all of the Hellfire Gala designs. And finally, the modern ABD award for why Havoc still hasn't finished his dissertation in 2021 goes to 
mind control. And of course, as every year, we have our classic Corbos, covering the various comics and stories that the two of us have discussed on our podcast over the past year. We'll start with the Buried Treasure Award. That goes to X-Men Unlimited number 9, featuring Captain Bloodscream. The award for Best Guest Star... The inimitable J. Jonah Jameson, for several memorable cameos. The Lemonade at the End of the World Award, for making the best of getting jerked around by someone else's crossover, goes to... Fantastic Four, number 416. And the Golden MacGuffin is... Magneto's Psychic Hate Goblin. The All Part of the Plan Award, for most graceful continuity cover-up, goes to... Onslaught for rationalizing the inconsistency of his second form. And relatedly, the runner-up for this award goes to... The Mad Libs-style resolution of the missing audio footage of Jean Grey from Bishop's X-Trader storyline. The Wolverine Award for absolute ubiquity goes to... Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Say it in my sleep at this point. The Future Past Award for most anticipated upcoming series coverage goes to... That weird post-Operation Zero Tolerance liminal period. Oh, yeah. The I've Made a Huge Mistake award for truly terrible judgment goes to... Dark Beast. You tried, buddy. You tried. The Well That Happened award goes to... Genetically Regressed Wolverine Licking Cyclops Awake. Yup. The award for best single-issue story that we covered this year goes to... Excalibur, number 91. So charming. The HMS Titanic Award for absolutely unsinkable vessels goes, of course, to... The Shield Helicarrier. There's only ever been one. The We Ship It Award for perfect but non-canonical couples goes to... Wolverine and Worf from Star Trek X-Men Second Contact, if you know what I mean. The Don't Touch My Stuff Award for Creative Possessiveness goes to... Alan Davis, who overwrote every issue of Clandestine that he didn't write as an embarrassingly implausible dream. And the classic ABD Award for why Havoc still hadn't finished his dissertation in 1996 goes to... Mind Control. Finally, outside of both categories, the Best Listeners of Any Podcast Ever Award goes to... You. All of you. Every single one of you. Because you really are. For real. We love you all so much. So this is normally where we thank a couple specific listeners who support us on Patreon. But given that this is the the semi-annual special, we want to expand that and thank everyone who listens to the podcast. Whether you're just tuning in for the first time or whether you've been around with us from the start, whether you're listening to this as it comes out or, you know binge listening some, somewhere in a library 50 years in the future um, for your, your school project on horrible ephemera of the, the early teens. And thank you as well so much to those of you who are able to donate to the show to help us do what we do. We say that you're the ones who help us stay on the air and ad-free, and that is 100% accurate. We're so grateful. This isn't something you have to do, but you do, and it means so much. And you are the folks who make this possible not only for yourselves, but for everyone else. Um, Like, you are very much part of the team that keeps us able to put this out, that keeps us from having to paywall anything ever. 
or, you know, be parts of networks or involve outside advertising. Like you keep this independent, you keep this going, you keep this real. Thank you. We will never once tell you about Casper mattresses or Bombas, unless it counts that I just did. That was a reference. Doesn't count. Hostess fruit pies, on the other hand. Oh, they're great. Thanks also to the folks who joined us for this specific episode to help make our winter special as special as it could be. Hub and Lisa, thank you so much for telling us all about Howard the Duck and that swamp guy who, yeah, his nose, his nose really does kind of look like a dick, doesn't it? And Jonathan Hickman, who joined us to talk about the architecture of the last three years of X-Books. We also have a few people without whom this podcast would not exist at all. These are the amazing, amazing, amazing folks behind the curtain who create, you know, the armature and the structure of everything we do, who make it look good, who basically take it from two weirdos blabbering about the X-Men to a relatively polished podcast. Those, of course, are our amazing producer, Matt Hunter. And David Wynn, who draws unique art for every episode and has been doing so for so many years. Listeners, if you only ever check out our show in a podcast app, check out the website sometimes, too. That stuff is amazing. Finally and foremost, thanks to our amazing spouses, T and Anna, who are fundamental parts of everything we do here and elsewhere. For real. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your platform of choice. In two weeks, we'll be striking out once again. Secure in the knowledge that Onslaught is truly, finally over. We hope. Aw, oh, jeez. <laughs>